0: I'm sure there it is. I hear it. Oh, that's the podium. It doesn't matter. I'm gonna keep talking anyways. I'll stand in front of the podium, so we'll be good. Hey, it's, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to share with you. Before I get into my message, though, I wanted to be able to do something that Uh, I didn't get to do last week we had the adult Christmas program in the morning service and the children's Christmas program at night and what that meant was I wasn't able to share anything from our trip the week before as most of you are aware we took a small group of individuals to uh, Costa Rica and we were able to be a blessing to them we were able to help them financially which of course everybody's always excited when they're helped financially and it was a blessing but I will tell you it was a little bit interesting I think they were more excited about some, something else that we brought than they were the financial resources. They were very grateful for the financial resources. Um, the pastor had emailed us ahead of time and just said, if you happen to have anything like an old projector, if you could bring that, that would be great. And there's no way he could have known that we just remodeled the youth room not that long ago. And when we remodeled it, we put large TVs on the wall and now we have a projector that has not been being used. So we were able to bring that to them. We brought it to them on Friday evening. I will tell you, Friday was probably the longest day of travel that I have ever been a part of. It would not be an exaggeration to say that we traveled for more than 18 hours that day. Uh, That is a lot of traveling. That's not even the two-hour service in between or anything like that, but 18 hours worth of travel. We were able to give them the projector on Friday night. By Saturday, the pastor had already posted a video of them using the projector in a youth service. So they were so excited to be able to use uh, what we had available. What's interesting is that projector never would have been of a whole lot of value to us moving forward but it is an incredible blessing to them. I celebrate the partnership that we have with them, that we are able to invest in them and to be able to love on them. We were able to be in a couple other services throughout the weekend, and uh, someone asked how the vacation was. Well, I preached twice, so I'm not sure it's really a vacation, and we were able to serve and be a blessing to a lot of people. So uh, thank you for allowing us to go. There were four of us total that went, Tim, Hannah, myself, and a young man named Jaden who normally attends the second service. It truly was a blessing, so thank you for allowing us to go and to be a blessing to them. I read a passage to you earlier, and I don't want to read the entire passage to you again at this point, but I want to remind you what it comes from. It comes from the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, I read verses 10 through 13, and if you want, you can go ahead and turn there already, and it will make it easier as I reference to some of those verses in that passage. Let me begin while you're turning there by asking a couple questions. Can you imagine a time when the voice of God might be crushed? Can you imagine a time when even our place of worship would be shuttered, even destroyed, or burned to the ground? I'm not talking about by way of natural disaster or some sort of accident. I'm talking about because of a hatred for everything that the church represents. Perhaps this doesn't sound too far-fetched to you today. Certainly our world has become more hostile toward the message of Christ in recent years. Our world loves to hear about the promised blessing of God. Yet the expectations and accountability of God seem far less of an attraction for most people in our culture. Tell me what you're going to give me. Don't tell me what you want me to do. Well, during the time of Ezra, such was the condition of Israel. And more specifically, even for the temple, It is debatable as to whether Ezra and Nehemiah's stories occurred during the exact same time period, or one maybe right after the other. But both individuals are tasked with rebuilding. Nehemiah is tasked with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem as they had been completely destroyed by Babylonian invaders. The Israelites are immediately scattered, with many falling into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians and many more falling to the sword. Some probably escaped lived like nomads without a place to call home. Clearly, the walls were the first thing to fall in this invasion. The temple would have been the last thing to fall, but it did fall. Know that the loss of the city walls would have been significant as they became vulnerable to the attacks from all sides. They lost their sense of security. It was kind of like the walls of Jericho. As long as they had their big, tall, thick walls, they felt pretty good about themselves. But take away the wall and their hearts are suddenly filled with great fear. But this is nothing compared to the loss of the temple. To the people of Israel, the temple stood as a reminder that God was still with them It gave them a place where they could run, where they could find comfort and peace. It reminded them of a greater time when all was right in the world and Israel was strong and prosperous. It was a place where they could run for healing, for forgiveness, and for vision regarding what tomorrow might hold. But suddenly it was no more. Years would pass before Ezra is tasked with rebuilding the temple, and they would begin by renewing the foundation, as we read in the beginning of Ezra chapter 3. This is a reference to the structural needs of the temple, but it is more than structural. Notice that those who are mentioned in this passage are not builders or masonry experts. We're talking about the priests and the Levites. If they are to restore the temple to what it ought to be, it would need to be more than just a beautiful building with a good foundation. It would need to be more than just a reflection of what used to be. It would need to be a place that is centered on God's character, God's law, and God's promises. Likewise, let me make clear that I am incredibly grateful for the facilities that we are blessed with here at Trinity Wesleyan Church. I've had other pastors who have visited our church for various district functions or sometimes just to stop by and say hello. At some point or another, the conversation usually comes up about how blessed we are to have the facilities that we have. I mean, how many churches of 230 or so people have such a beautiful sanctuary? and a family life center that is as well cared for as ours. We are very blessed. But even if we have the most beautiful facilities in the world, if we are not centered on God's character, God's law, and God's promises, then we are nowhere near as beautiful as we think we are. We are to be a church that is lifting up the name of Jesus Christ above everything else. We are to be a church that is calling people to live holy lives. And we are to be a church that is pressing on to take hold of the prize to which God has called us heavenward. And in all of these things, we are to be displaying the love of God. It is interesting that as the priests and the Levites lead the people in worship, they begin with a familiar refrain. It's a verse that is repeated at least 11 times in the Old Testament. The first time is in 1 Chronicles 16, 34. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. It might be worded slightly different in some passages as it is in our passage, specifically referencing his goodness toward Israel, but the principle remains the same. It is a celebration and appreciation of his goodness while recognizing that God truly loves us. If you'll remember, I used this passage from Psalms a few weeks ago as I kicked off this series that used the exact same phrase. Know that his goodness is not dependent upon your current circumstances. That's what we talked about. Even if everything's going wrong in your life, God is still good. And his goodness and his love and his faithfulness never changes. God's love will endure forever. You may not feel very loved today, but I will guarantee you God's love endures forever. It's important to realize that as the building begins the people need to recognize what was making this possible. Not only was there a king who had given permission to Ezra to go back and rebuild the temple, very similar to what Nehemiah had experienced, but there was also a God who was over everything, and he had put all the pieces in place at just the right time to make this happen. There are so many ways to apply this to our own lives. But what it comes down to is this. As you experience incredible blessings this Christmas season and beyond, never forget that it is God who has put all the pieces in place for you at just the right time. And he is the one who deserves our worship and praise. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. Just take a moment and just consider for a moment how God has displayed his goodness to you in your life. During your times of brokenness, when it seemed as if everything else was falling apart, God's goodness was faithful. God was faithful to be there with you, to walk alongside you, to provide in that moment of financial distress, to provide in that moment when the doctors gave a bad report, to provide in that moment when other people betrayed you. God's goodness has been faithful. What if things didn't work out well? God's goodness has been faithful. And his love endures forever. Well, maybe you wonder what all of this has to do with the Christmas story. It would seem that this is some sort of obscure passage from thousands of years ago that is completely unrelated to Christ's birth, but it actually relates very closely to the story of Christ. To begin with, understand that Christ came to establish a foundation that would last Although Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus did provide a new way to accomplish what God had set up in the Old Testament. Previously, if you committed any sort of sin, a sacrifice was required to cover up your sin. Yet inevitably, the time would come that another sacrifice would be required. Well, what Jesus does is he becomes the one-time perfect sacrifice that would cover up every sin. Now your salvation would no longer be based on your ability to keep the law or whether your sacrifice was good enough to make up for your sin. It would be based now on the grace of God as he made up for where we fell short. Anyone who would... Truly put their faith in Christ, receiving his gift of salvation. Now receives, one, God's gift of eternal salvation. Two, they now receive God's gift of the Holy Spirit in their lives, enabling them to, number three, be transformed into a new creation, not having to return to their old sin over and over again. Do you see how what Christ did changes everything? There was a foundation, but Jesus himself becomes the foundation, becomes the chief cornerstone that all of our faith is based out of. Today, our hope, everything we have in Christ, must be built on that foundation and that foundation alone. Well, not everybody responds the same way to the foundation which is being laid. In Ezra's time, there is a blend of responses, the passage says that the people gave a huge shout of praise. This was something to be celebrated. Remember all the things that the temple represented to the people? A place of healing, a place of refuge, a place where they could re- experience God's presence, God's forgiveness. All of those things are being restored. But not everybody responds with laughter and celebration. Verse 12 says But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. You know, I can't help but wonder why they would be weeping at such a great event. I mean, this is a great day for the body. Based on human nature, I have a few suggestions as to why they might have wept on this occasion. First one is this, perhaps they wept out of regret that they had ever let this happen in the first place. These would have been individuals who remembered the way things used to be. They knew that God had instructed Joshua and the Israelites that they were to be faithful to God's law. Meditating on it day and night, not turning to the right or to the left. They knew that as Joshua was instructed in this, that they were told that if they would be faithful in this, that God would continually bless them and make them prosper. Clearly, somewhere along the way, they had lost their devotion to God, and the promise of blessing and prosperity apparently was no longer being extended. Maybe as they see this happening, they realize, man, we messed up. Somewhere along the way, we got our eyes fixed on something that didn't matter. We got caught up in the music, we got caught up in the leaders and who we were going to follow and we were no longer fixing our eyes on the law that God had given. Maybe they wept out of regret. Maybe they wept out of disappointment that what was being done today paled in comparison to the past. I've been around the church long enough that I remember the way things used to be, and I think I'm probably not the only one here who would say that. I've been serving the Lord for almost 30 years, although I've actually attended the church for even longer. Much has changed over those years. The songs that we sing are different. For many, the sermons that are preached are different. The people in the pews are different. We are busier. There are more things going on in our lives. Have you ever looked out at the church today Or maybe even the church that is yet to come and grieved over its perceived lack of authenticity. Where you thought, you guys just don't know what church is supposed to be about. Sure, they may look godly, but they're not like the church of our day. Please note that there are those who legitimately are suspect within the church. The Apostle Paul warned of such people who would take on a form of godliness yet deny its power, no longer expecting the transforming power of God to work in us. But there are times that our heritage can blind us to the great things that God is doing in the present and in the future. Celebrate your heritage. Celebrate the way the church was, the experiences that the church has had, but realize that the church today doesn't have to look exactly like the church did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We do need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We do have to keep our eyes fixed ahead. But it doesn't mean that the church will look just like it did way back when. There is a third possibility as to why some wept on this occasion. Perhaps they wept simply because they had tears of joy, realizing the greatness of what was happening. You know what was happening here? A second chance. A possibility is that these older priests and these Levites were overwhelmed with emotion, realizing that God was giving his people a second chance. God had told them, you be faithful and I will reward you, I will bless you, I will make you prosperous. I wonder how many of those priests, from the day that the temple was destroyed, I wonder how many of those priests wondered to themselves, Will God's blessing ever return to God's people? And after years of waiting, they finally saw the Spirit of God blessing and the foundation being laid once again and the church being restored. When we compare this to the first coming of Christ, which is what we have in the Christmas story, we begin with the words of the angels. As they shared with the shepherds, Richard read it to us earlier in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says that the angel said, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Certainly this is great news for everybody. And certainly this would cause great joy for all people. This was what all of humanity had been waiting for. The hope, the promise of redemption, a way to be made right with God. But the truth is that not all would rejoice over the birth of a Savior in Bethlehem. I'm Sure, there were some who did. The shepherds clearly did. They rejoiced, and they went and proclaimed to everybody that they could. You had Mary and Joseph, who clearly, they were pretty excited about this event. You had a couple individuals in the temple named Simeon and Anna, and they both rejoice over the Messiah that has come. The wise men clearly do, although that likely wasn't at the manger scene, but perhaps a couple years down the road. But there are others who would not rejoice. Matthew 2 says that the wise men came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. At this, King Herod sets out to find the Christ child, seeking to have him killed. He feared that this king of the Jews might change the status quo. He felt threatened, so he had to do something immediately before Jesus became a problem. Later, it would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Certainly, they would have known of the birth of Jesus. Remember, the shepherds went around telling everybody all the things that they had experienced, all the things that they had heard, Maybe they didn't believe those stories when they were told, that the Messiah had been born, that a virgin had been with the child, and the Son of the Most High God was there in their midst. Maybe they thought it was nothing more than a little bit of ranting from some crazy shepherds. But the truth is, they did not rejoice over Christ and his coming. I'll take it a step further. There were some who did not rejoice simply because they didn't understand what was taking place. Let me suggest that everyone had a reason to rejoice. Even though this Messiah didn't come the way they expected. Even though he threatened the status quo, all of humanity could rejoice over the gift that Jesus brought to them. Remember that he made salvation possible to everyone. Everyone. So maybe you don't like the vessel, but you can rejoice over what the vessel made possible. Today, there are some who rejoice over Jesus and his coming. It's typically those who understand what his coming was about. It was about bringing hope and salvation to humanity. He would live for 33 years, and during that time, he would do great things. He would teach great things. He would make a difference in individual people's lives. But all of that paled in comparison to what he did on the cross and as he came out of the tomb. In those two things, Jesus made salvation possible possible for all of humanity. There's some who don't like that. Maybe because they don't think that they really need his salvation. Maybe because in this gift of salvation, he also calls us to live holy lives and we just don't like that. Or maybe because we simply don't realize exactly how much of a blessing he was. Know this, as Jesus came, there was a reason for all to rejoice, even though some may not. Well, there's one last part of this passage that I want you to consider. Back to our passage in Ezra, verse 13 says that amidst the blend of voices with rejoicing and weeping, word spread of this great thing that was taking place. It says, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. You can almost imagine the roar of the crowd and you're not really sure if what you're hearing is good or if it's bad. It's kind of like a great football game where everything's on the line and everybody's on the edge of their seats and they're paying so much attention and they're eager for something great to happen and suddenly a great play is made and half the crowd suddenly begins to cheer uncontrollably while the other half begins to groan and weep. Those outside the stadium can't see what has just taken place, but they know that whatever it is, it's a big deal. Imagine that you were among those who were not participating in the rebuilding of the temple. You got up this morning and you heard that the Jews were working to rebuild the temple today. I think they're going to lay the foundation. And you thought to yourself, well, good for them. And you went about doing your daily chores. And then suddenly you begin to hear a rumble of noise. That rumble is building to the point that it becomes a roar You stop what you're doing. You begin to wonder what must be taking place down at the temple. And word would spread. This was a big deal. Likewise, word would spread regarding the coming of Christ. I already mentioned that the shepherds would be among those who would first share about what they had seen and experienced. Yet so would the wise men along with probably every other individual who came in contact with Jesus as the Christ child. And as Jesus' life would play out, many would follow him. In fact, he couldn't even enter a town without crowds of people gathering in, flocking to see and experience the Son of God. Even upon his death, word would continue to spread. First, only among the local crowd, those who were there at the crucifixion, yet word would spread rapidly around the world. Today, the birth of a Savior, one who would change everything, bringing hope and life to all humanity, still is proclaimed throughout the world. That low rumble that turned into a roar continues to make noise today. Today, the birth of a Savior still ought to mean something to us. Do you realize today that as you proclaim the birth of the Messiah, that you are a part of the greatest story ever told? Let your voice be heard. Let it be a voice of celebration and joy as we proclaim together that this holiday is truly about a Savior who came for us. I encourage you, over the next few days, enjoy your time with your family. Open presents, give presents, enjoy fellowship, enjoy eating. But in the midst of it all, make sure that Christ is at the center of it. On the day of the triumphal entry, long after Christ's birth, about 33 years later, Jesus enters Jerusalem. By the way, the same place where the temple had been rebuilt in Ezra. Jesus enters Jerusalem and Jesus declares that if the people didn't praise the Lord that day, that the rocks would cry out in their place. May the rocks never cry out in my place. Instead, let us proclaim the words of Psalm 8, which says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. Isn't it the praise of children and infants? Christmas is so much better when there are kids around. We celebrate with them because we want to see the look on their faces when they receive these great gifts. But the greatest gift they will ever receive is Jesus Christ. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Allow this Christmas season to be a time for us to celebrate the majesty and the beauty of Christ. For he has brought meaning, hope, and purpose, and forgiveness, and grace, and mercy to us. And today, we have a reason to celebrate. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, you know that often as we we worship, we spend time in this service challenging each other to be more godly. To make changes in our daily lives, And, and certainly there is an element of this, but today our focus is simply to say thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the joy that we walk in knowing that you have made salvation possible to us knowing that your goodness is constant and that your love endures forever and is being extended to us even now. Lord, we celebrate today you. We pray that as we go through this week of celebration, that this would all be about you. But I also pray that maybe it would go beyond this week. I pray that you would help us every single day to walk in celebration of what you have done. Or may we constantly be aware of how much you love us and what you've done for us. Father, I pray today that if there be one that does not know you, doesn't know your love and your grace and your mercy that I've talked about this morning, that today they would experience it for the first time. Maybe it's been a while since they've prayed And they know about your grace, but it has been reduced to theory. The joy that comes with salvation, it has become less than what it was supposed to be. Pray that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in us. Father, I pray right now that this Christmas season would be a season of true joy because of what you've done and what you are going to do. Fill us with your spirit today and be honored in the way we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is a blessing to have each of you with us. I do want to just mention, Jerry did give an announcement for Tuesday night. We have our uh, Christmas Eve service that will be here. That is at 6 o'clock. I will say this. I am very conscious of the fact that Christmas Eve is a very busy time for families, so because of that, we will make sure that that service goes no longer than one hour, because I know you have other things that you feel like you need to do, um, wrapping presents, doing all the last-minute shopping, not that anyone will be waiting until then to do it, Uh, but... Uh, 6 o'clock until 7 o'clock here, it will include a candle lighting ceremony. It will also include, uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of that, and then there will be several songs and a brief message as well. So we really would love to have as many of you as possible. Uh, Invite a neighbor or a friend. You know Christmas is a time of year that people will come to church, but they will not show up for another time of year for some folks. So let me encourage you, use Tuesday night as an opportunity to bring folks. I'm telling you already, you get the sneak peek. On Tuesday night, I will be sharing a gospel message. And I would love more than anything else to have individuals find Christ and have a brand new understanding of what Christmas is about. So we invite you to come Tuesday night if you can bring some other folks with you. Thank you for being with us this morning and go in peace.